0: Double Loop Podcast, your source for everything about fingerprints, while you're working on your comparisons. We'll talk about comparisons. I'm Eric Ray,
1: And I'm Glenn Langenberg.
0: And Glenn, uh, just continuing in with our uh, little intro gag from uh, last week, uh, here's my uh, quiz for you. Uh, that's like comparing... I'm going to say apples to oranges. No, no, no. It's, it's comparing listeners who support us through patreon.com slash double loop podcast and listeners who support us by telling a friend about the show. We really do appreciate them both.
1: Oh, that's good. I like that. All right. That's good. Okay. Sorry I, I, I muffed that up. Then. All right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, mine for you is... Genius is 1% inspiration. And 99% perspiration? No, nope, 99% listeners are actually donating through Patreon. And that supports us. And that is genius. That would be great.
0: And speaking of a Patreon, a couple other things... Uh, first, big thanks to James and Michael, our, our two new Patreon or patrons through Patreon.com, uh, who uh, signed up to support us over the past week, and also through the support uh, and support from our sponsors, uh, I was able to uh, get in some new equipment. So if I sound extra nice, hopefully there's a difference. Um, uh, it's because I got a, a new microphone. And uh, swing arm to kind of hold it in front of my face, so I'm not having to lean down to the microphone anymore. Once I kind of work out all the bugs from this, uh, we'll get Glenn his ordered in, and uh, we can you know sound and and feel even more professional as we uh, as we do this whole podcasting thing. Uh, so if you want to see a, a picture of the new rig that uh, I'm recording all this on, you can uh, go to our Twitter page, uh, follow us at Double Loop Pod. And uh just this past weekend, I uh, uploaded a a picture of my of my recording and editing setup here in my room uh, with the microphone and my computer and everything so uh make yeah, sure looks to, cool, man yeah, make sure to follow us and uh, we'll get Glenn to post his once uh, his equipment uh, arrives uh, in up in Minnesota and Eric, I have a correction from last week actually that I wanted to.
1: Uh, push up my glasses as well And do the actually Before we get a lot of ang- angry <laughs> tweets And people who are like No, that's not right uh, I, I gave a quote last week that said Just a small town boy living in South Detroit uh, That is right, actually right. not the lyric From the song In, in fact, uh, the next day the, the, That song from Journey Came on the radio And it I, I heard the lyrics and went, oh, I, g- I gave the wrong lyrics It is just a city boy born and raised in south detroit there okay so you're
0: off the hook for getting for for not getting uh, it right yeah i gave you the that's, wrong quote. that's good i was there was that was that's it i was like all of a sudden this the next line wouldn't come to my head that's but, um that's why as as a little follow-up to to comparisons um other languages uh will use other Uh, Things to compare So it's actually pretty common Through different European languages To say that's like comparing apples and pears Hmm. Uh, But there's other more fun comparisons In Welsh it's honey and butter (laughs) In uh, Serbian it's uh, grandmothers and toads Oh that's great That's pretty great And in Romanian it is the best Because they have options right You can either say it's like comparing a gypsy And a marker (laughs) uh cows and long johns or the best grandmothers and machine
1: guns (laughs) yeah okay leave it to the eastern europeans to come up with with uh great folk folklorian sayings that's awesome Uh, great it is
0: The main focus of this episode is going to be uh, an interview and discussion uh, of a case from the 1980s in Tucson, Arizona. Uh, So first off, let's welcome our guest, uh, John Schwartz. Uh, John, welcome to the show. Hi, John.
2: Hey, Glenn. Hey, Eric. Thank Uh, you for having me
0: on. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for uh, for joining us all the way from Florida. So, uh, John, why don't you start off just with an introduction to uh, all the listeners out there. Telling us uh, who you are, kind of what you do in the latent print world, fingerprint world, forensics world, and also how you came to be in this uh, world in the first place. How you? Everyone seems to have a unique story of how they fell into fingerprints. Uh, so go ahead and share yours with uh, with our listeners.
2: Right. Yeah. Def- definitely. Kind of fell into it. Um, I'm probably uh, maybe a dying breed, I guess. Right now, I work for a, a sheriff's office in Florida. As a late print examiner where I, I do fingerprint comparisons, APIS searches, process evidence on a limited basis, and, and occasionally go out to a crime scene, but that's very rare. Right, right. I started back in 1982. Um, I had taken a lot of photography courses through high school and some college courses. And a friend of mine who was working at the police department and said, Hey, there's this ID tech position opening. They take a lot of pictures. Uh, I think you'd be good at that. And, of course, he had no idea really what an ID technician (laughs) did. Right. Uh, So I needed to die. But uh, somehow through the the grace of God, and they must have been a really weak moment, they decided to hire me (laughs) I tested. And so once I got on the job, uh, photography skills were pretty uh, well established. So then it was, here, let's uh, teach you how to process a crime scene and collect uh, fingerprint evidence and trace evidence, and we'll start teaching you how to do fingerprint comparisons and also uh, classify fingerprint cards uh, that we would work on every day.
0: So there's the the full range of, of fingerprint-related duties, from the 10-print cards, and then back then, before APHIS, the filing of the cards and, and uh, comparing new arrestees, finding them in the big file drawers, uh, using that 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 system and then also collecting fingerprints processing at scenes or in the lab and the comparisons just the the whole nine yards right
2: yes yes it was it was a great job
0: (laughs) (laughs) they kept you busy probably too right
2: yes uh you know i mean tucson was a pretty pretty big city and sometimes you'd just be the one technician on a night for you know half a million people it would just be you so you could be running around quite a bit
0: right right so that was you know, that was the system back in the days. Is you'd get in these cards and you'd have to file them away in the drawers based on the pattern. But when did we? They were there back through that whole changeover process to Aphis. So when did when did uh, we first get that Aphis system in Arizona?
2: So Tucson, we go into it in 1994. Okay, when the state system goes statewide. So first it started in Phoenix, uh they they bought the the morpho system and then realized, "Boy, this is a really expensive endeavor." And so, you know, th- there was definitely a need, so the state rescued them after they did <laughs> extensive testing of right. the other systems, but, you know, here was one that was already somewhat established. So, uh they went with that system and went statewide. And at that time, uh Tucson became a satellite system or a site for doing the regional searches for other agencies. Right. That was in 94. But prior to that, it was all, I'd go to the jail every night, pick up all the arrest cards, bring them back, sort them out between first-time offenders and, and people that had been arrested previously, classify those fingerprint cards. Eventually, we would do a search to see if they were in that system or not. And if they were repeat offenders, if we knew that, we would do uh, – comparisons against those cards that were already in the system. It would take several hours to get that done.
0: Right and and when you say search you, you mean opening the drawer of the file cabinet and going through looking for the the matching fingerprints.
2: Exactly. So, you know, we'd have the Henry fingerprint class system and depending on if it had whorls and where they were in the in the 10 fingers, you could start to narrow things down and if things had a certain ridge count, it would narrow it down even further. So, you could with a reasonable degree of accuracy, <laughs> to find these find these people in there. I mean, occasionally you'd misclassify a right a pattern and get totally lost, but uh, for the most part, we had a pretty good success rate of finding those cards.
0: Getting into the the uh, now the case we wanted to focus on. Uh, back in the mid nineteen eighties, uh, Tucson w- was uh, experiencing a, a series of um, sexual assaults by a uh, person who was dubbed the Primetime Rapist. Uh, so, why don't you kind of talk about uh, the history of of that case, uh, what some of those crimes were like, and also kind of what the city of Tucson was uh, you know was thinking at the time that all this was going on?
2: Sure. So. Like, towards the end of 1983, early 1984, these uh rapes begin to occur. And, you know, it wasn't like Tucson had never had serial rapists before, because, you know, in the short time that I had been there at that point, a couple of years, we'd already had, like, a brazen rapist, uh, and the uh, one was called the Potbelly Rapist because the, the perpetrator had a potbelly.
1: <laughs> Not because of the potbelly piggy carrying around? I was thinking the
0: same thing. <laughs>
2: he had a big belly and a detective just kind of came up with that name and it stuck, you know, you can't, you can't pick your nicknames. (laughs)
1: Ain't that the truth? (laughs) So that's That's a good hashtag. I like that.
2: (laughs) So, so it wasn't like we were not used to, to how this would work. Right. uh, You know, that panic could possibly ensue. Um, if people started calling in with tips, then we knew that we would start to get a, a bunch of uh, fingerprint comparisons from the detectives. Because this is this is before APHIS. Right. We're 10 years before we're even going to see APHIS in our office. So it was just, here's a here's a name, compare the prints against that. And as our, our unit was back then, as, me as an ID tech, if I went and I worked the scene and I collected that evidence it would be my responsibility to conduct the fingerprint comparisons.
0: The, there were uh, fingerprints collected, uh, latent prints collected at some of the scenes here, or at least one of the scenes?
2: Yeah, there were most of the, the latent prints that we collected uh, were eliminated as belonging to the, the victims, right. the people that lived in the house. Um, but there was at least one case, um, I believe it was a, a palm print, that was collected by uh, an ID technician named uh, Mary McCall. Okay. So that one, it was not coming back to any, any of the victims or anybody that belonged in that house. So we had a pretty good idea that that one might be the, an actual suspect print.
0: Take us through what, what one of these uh, attacks was uh, was kind of like. I mean, so the, the primetime rapists they call him that just because the, the time of day he usually attacked was, you know, in the early evening... Seven o'clock, seven eight o'clock ish time. Take us through what some of these attacks were like.
2: So what kind of stood out about him is that he didn't really care if there was anybody else at home besides the, the intended victim. If there were other family members, he would either you know threaten them with a gun or a knife, tie them up, possibly make them see the the assaults themselves. So he he wasn't really. You know, classic rapist of waiting, okay, there's one person here, it's it's safe. My odds of getting caught are very reduced because it's just one person, the victim. He was cased out, and they had a good idea of what they were going to do. But here it's two or three people there at the house, and it, that didn't stop him. You would think most people would back off from that. He just went in and, and committed his crime.
0: Yeah, the the uh, in, in reading up about the case, there were thirty incidents that took place, uh, you know, all believed to be from the same uh, attacker between eighty three and eighty six in Tucson, and there were a total of ninety people uh, home in those thirty attacks. So, uh, you know, usually on average three people in the house, and some of the uh, attacks uh, in this uh, news story I'm reading from the Tucson Citizen. They talk about in uh, 84, a uh, 41-year-old woman and her 15-year-old daughter were assaulted by the man, uh, while three other people, uh, including two other kids, were also home. Uh, Another one in late 85, just before Christmas, uh, four family members were held at gunpoint. Uh, He rapes a 34-year-old woman and a 5-year-old girl. And then forces the husband to re- withdraw fifteen thousand dollars from the bank account. So there's, like you're saying, multiple people home, and this isn't, you know, a single woman, you know, at three a.m. Uh, that's being attacked. It's the entire families uh, while they're just watching primetime TV. And, and and did he generally come in through the front door or a window?
1: Did he sneak in or bust the door in? What was the the point of entry typically?
2: Yeah, I think it would usually be the back door so when it comes up later on to reveal actually who he is i mean he does air conditioning work so he he has a good idea of the layout of houses I don't okay know if you actually there was a technician that came and worked on their air conditioning and heating systems and then he would know the layout but i believe most of them were probably the rear door I, I don't i don't really remember anything being broken but i could be totally wrong on that
0: one of the articles here just says an unlocked door doesn't look like it's necessarily a blitz attack, knocking things over, or breaking the door down, but just uh, all of a sudden, you're watching TV and you look up and there's someone behind you with a gun. So,
2: all right, so you can definitely relate to if this is going on in your community, and it's not a matter of safety of numbers because it's not. You're, you know, he's coming in and there's more than one person, right? And your this assaults are still occurring, so that could definitely create a. Not so much a panic, but a definitely a concern in your community of, well, this is different. What's what's going on here, and, and how do we protect ourselves from this? So,
0: and by '86, there's a whole task force uh, in Tucson PD assigned to just this case.
2: Correct. Yes.
0: Uh, all right. So, take us through what happens next with this uh, the suspect that they uh, they initially bring in.
2: So, what happens is. Composites have come out, so obviously people are looking at a composite saying, oh, I know this person I know looks like this, and so they're calling in tips. And, of course, the detectives are then giving us the names to, to compare against. But uh, one night, our clerk typist, she is out jogging at a local high school track. And as she's jogging, she sees this guy looking at her, and she kind of gets a bad vibe of, why is he looking at me? I and mean, it just seems makes her feel a little uncomfortable. Right. And he's close enough to the composite that she can't eliminate him from him. We would say it looks like him. She notes the license plate number on his vehicle when he when he leaves. So she writes that down. The next day, she's in the office uh, talking about it, and so they decide. Well, let's let's see if this comes back. If the plate comes back to anybody, so she runs the plate. And it comes back to uh, Mr. Michael, Michael Cooper. Okay. So then from there, you know, and she went through our record section, so, so she was acutely aware of how to do criminal background searches on people. So she looks that up, looks his name up. Well, there's nothing in the Tucson uh, fingerprint database on him, but she does find out that he has a, a fingerprint cards uh, over at the in the county sheriff's office. When that's kind of revealed, Tim O'Sullivan, who was the darkroom technician, but he was basically an ID technician, and he had done all the work that we had done. But he had been out of the field for eight to nine years at that point, doing most of the all the darkroom work. So he wasn't going out to scenes anymore, wasn't actively doing comparison work. But uh, Tim was the kind of person that if you had a tough comparison, you know, this is before – Aphis again, right? Uh, you weren't quite sure. Well, I can't find this one. You'd go to Tim because he had a, a good eye to, to find these these things.
0: He was uh, so a lot of units have you know the the couple people that are really good at that finding skill. While there's plenty of information to make the identification, if you can find it, there's not that information to kind of clue you in as to where to look for it in all the fingers or palms. You're talking about a palm here, so especially you know that makes sense. Um, was there a reason that he wasn't doing active comparisons anymore? He was doing the darkroom work now.
2: You know, he was uh, graduated from uh, Brooks uh, College over in uh, California, so he had that bachelor's degree in photography. So okay. He was just a he was just a natural for being able to go in there and keep all the chemistry right and, and produce all the the color photographs. I mean, this is before digital, right? So, right. You know, where all that's chemicals, and you know, he would. Produce all the the color images from the, the various crime scenes. Got it. So okay. I mean, that was just kind of his niche. He became that that guy uh, to to do that. Yeah. So that's the main main reason why he wasn't really working the field anymore.
0: Got it. But but and still not doing active latent print work, but still every once in a while asked to to look at some comparisons.
2: Right. Definitely not signing off on any reports. Not signing off as a verifier. Just. Oh, look! Okay. Found it here, and then the, that that uh, lead technician would uh, look at that. Oh, okay, there it is, and then it would get verified, and the report would, would be issued.
0: And that's a good thing to bring up as a verification. So even at this time, you guys were verifying all your identifications.
2: Yes, yeah, yes. No notes, but <laughs> we were verifying <laughs> our, uh, our our work.
0: And that's that you know fairly common for the time frame it's the limited documentation of all this stuff going on which has obviously changed uh, over the years so they get uh, Cooper' Michael Cooper's fingerprints from the and palm prints I'm assuming from the 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 county's uh, record section
2: so he's obviously I don't know what why his fingerprints are in there he's obviously been arrested or encountered law enforcement for some reason i'm pretty sure that it wasn't for sexual assault or anything like that so right i don't believe there was any history on mr cooper's part of having sexual assaults in his in his background but i don't i don't know why the fingerprints are there
1: And and would that have been standard too to also have palm prints at the time
2: You know, um, at that point, most of the people that would have palm prints would meant that it would have had to have been a felony uh, arrest. For the most part, if it was just a misdemeanor, we would just do the ten prints. So, but it could have been, and and I'm sorry, Glenn, I don't really have this information. Um, It could have been that maybe they brought him in to the sheriff's office, and so then they might have taken palm prints just as a standard uh, course of, of procedure. But, yeah, yeah, so I don't really know why they're they're
0: there. <laughs> Got it. So we have Michael Cooper is the person that's suspected by this clerk and is being looked at by you know the ID techs or the darkroom tech at this point. but the detectives aren't you know really aware of this uh, at, yet at this point. This is just kind of work that the the ID unit is doing, right?
2: Correct. So they they don't have a clue that this is going on. The task force has no idea that they have gone and obtained these palm cards. You know, and they're going to do this comparison. They they have no idea who Michael Cooper is. At this point, they have no idea. They're not privy to this information yet. So you know, they obtain that palm card. Tim does a comparison and he looks at it and he says it's it's a match. He he sees it. We're going to get this ball rolling. Because we've, we've got a hit and the ID section is going to be the heroes here because we've, we've identified this primetime rapist. Since, you know, he's not going to be the lead examiner in this. So Tim's not going to be the lead examiner. It's going to be the, the ID technician that collected that latent print evidence. Okay. So the way our unit worked back then is if, if you worked the scene, you would be responsible for doing the fingerprint comparisons. The lead technician on this is, uh, Mary McCall. She's a, Obtain the latent prints from the crime scene, so she's going to be ultimately responsible for doing this comparison and finalizing the report uh, following those procedures. A little bit of background, and we have to remember this is 1980s, so it's a different time, and it's easy for us to look at things from from this point of view and judge history from from a modern sense. But Kim or Mary. We, we called her Kim, but her real name is Mary. Oh, okay. <laughs> so <laughs> Mary McCall was the first female ID technician. So you can imagine uh, that a little bit of pressure, probably hazing, if you might say that uh, you're the first one, you're really going to have to prove yourself. And while most of us might have taken the hazing as, okay, well, I'm, I'm going to learn from this or, uh, just accepted it just being that first person that's breaking the the, the ceiling is they're going to face a lot more than the normal person and anybody after that I mean it's already the groundwork's already been laid but that first person that has to to break those barriers they face a, a tougher road
0: right
1: yeah and, and, and you're pointing out something that I'm not sure we've ever discussed that just how male dominated the field was back then in the seventies and eighties, it like you're saying, it really was all males and you didn't start seeing that transition in a lot of labs until nineties, sometimes late nineties. Even you know, where I worked at the state, I don't I don't think we had a female until maybe around two thousand or so.
2: Right. And now it's completely reversed.
1: <laughs> yeah, no that's, exactly that's true.
2: So so just lay a little bit of groundwork of where maybe uh, Mary McCall's is going to come from, uh, the pressure that's going to be, extra pressure that may be exuded on her. Uh, so just a little bit of groundwork there. Right. So Tim does the comparison, says it's a hit. And now this is the part that's kind of also kind of fuzzy fuzzy too because I've heard different accounts of what actually happened next. One account is that Tim uh, gives the fingerprint comparison to Gene Scott who was our supervisor of the ID section. Okay. And so Gene looks at it and agree. Another version is Jane never looked at it. So yeah. there's really kind of this gray area that I'm not really sure what happens here. I could envision it happening of maybe you, you don't see it, but you know, this person that has, so it's a confirmation bias of, well, if you can see it, I can see it. So, yeah, It's got to yeah.
1: be there. Um, you know, what you're describing is is very common in some of these stories that I've researched for erroneous IDs where, especially back in the day where documentation was limited, there's a whole lot of I never saw it, and especially once the answer is known. Right. A lot of people are – confused if they saw it or not or sometimes the story as well it was given to me but I didn't really compare it or yeah I mean I just took a quick glance at it and sometimes even offer well yeah I mean it looks like him but I never actually did a comparison I there's a lot of backpedaling a lot of you know um Back backtracking once it's once it's known that there's an error and then everyone just kind of goes into defensive mode of well I don't want I don't want to say that I actually looked at this and I did it because I don't want to lose my job over this.
0: Well, you said uh, Gene Scott was the supervisor of the unit, right? Yes. Was uh, was he doing regular comparisons as well at the time as a supervisor?
2: Yeah, Gene probably verified. Um, I'm going to say ninety percent of the stuff that went through there. So, sure. uh, you know, I would do a fingerprint comparison with my limited notes. Write it down. <laughs> you know, my right. notes was writing in pencil what finger it was and who it belonged to. Right. Um, so, give it to to Gene. He would look at it and then I'd write up the report and he'd sign off on it.
0: Was well, he doing any uh, comparisons where 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 he would do the initial work? No. No. Okay. It was all verifications. Okay.
2: Correct. Yes. Not really sure if Gene looked at it or not. He may. He might have. I don't know. But we're kind of there of he might have looked at it, might not have, or might not admit to that he saw it and didn't see it, or something along those lines.
0: So now the this identification is turned over to the detectives.
2: Uh, well, yeah. So they say, "Hey, we've we've got a hit, and this is the person that we we've identified."
1: back up for a second just so i have the the order of this right so the this first guy tim he he makes the identification and then he gives it to mary and she verifies
2: it no so mary hasn't looked at it yet
1: (laughs) mary okay all right so i just want to make sure then so it goes to tim and then may or may not have gone to the supervisor but still a report went out who wrote the report the original report
2: okay no report has gone out at this point.
1: Okay. All right. That's why I'm confused. I see. Okay.
2: So no report has been written. We had procedures, probably loosely followed. Uh, not like anything I would do, ever even think about doing today.
1: No, we know. Different Different time, different, different process back then.
2: Exactly. So I believe that Gene Scott has somehow been involved. They call the task force and say, hey, we've got this, this guy, Michael Cooper, we've identified him. So they are able to go out and and pick him up. So this is probably happening probably sometime in early May of 1986, probably in the day shift, which was 7 in the morning to 3 in the afternoon, and this has probably occurred. Well, Mary McCall is working in the evening shift, and her day would start at, at 3 o'clock. Okay. So she comes in, and they tell her, hey, We've identified the primetime rapist. You need to go over to the sheriff's office and palm print him and do the comparison and give them the answer. Right then, we're not following any procedure that we normally would have done because, you know, I would, wouldn't ever imagine sending somebody over to a, another agency doing that palm printing and then asking them to do the comparison. There, but our yeah. guidelines were so loose that you're just like, oh my gosh. So, <laughs> so these things start to steamroll, and Kim or Mary goes over there. She has to palm print Mr. Cooper, who's, according to my, what I understand, he's already been interviewed extensively at this point, and so he's already stressed out about this, and now Mary has to palm print him, and. He's saying, "I didn't do it. Like, you've got to, you know, you've got to help me. I didn't do this." And she's like, "Well, you've already—they've already identified you, and I—I I just need to palm print you so I can do the comparison and make sure you're the right. Your palms match the palms that we've already compared." And right, she's in a situation that no one would ever want to be in. So now she has to do the comparison, given her history of everything that has happened. Uh, and she knows it's been identified by by Tim. She knows that this is Tim was the guy we go to. That if you had a heart print, you would go to him. And she cannot find it. She cannot find it. She cannot find it. <laughs> Keeps looking, and the detectives are now: Is it him? Is it him? Is it him? She never ever sees it. She knows that it. She cannot find it. But she breaks. You know, hindsight's 2020. Oh, I would never do that. But. Who knows what any of us would do in that situation Sure. during that time? So she breaks and says, uh, yeah, I see it. It's him.
1: Wow, okay. She'd...
2: Yeah, so she, she uh, knows. She
1: knows right then. Let let, let me ask you a question. I mean, did she, when she couldn't find it, did she think because you know she's taken these exemplars? Does she think to herself, or even ask, maybe I should get better exemplars? And I does she ask, where is it? You know, uh, because I mean, I, my my first thought is, well, I must have not recorded the the correct area, uh, and I would want to maybe even see the other exemplars. And try to or just ask what area and I would assume that I had not correctly recorded the area where it is that would have been my first go to
2: right so at this point she's off isolated by herself and the, and Tim has has done the comparison. He's gone home for the day mm. um, so that's
1: right no cell phones back in the day
2: exactly um, yeah, I don't even think pagers were invented yet um, nope. she's just thinks to herself. Once I get out of this stressful situation, I'll get back to the office, and then I'll be able to find it. I can't find it mm. now. I don't see it, but they can't be wrong it It, it just it just couldn't be that that, that that they're wrong
0: Wow fingerprints, yeah, fingerprints don't lie. we don't make that kind of mistake. It's an exact science
2: yes, yeah <laughs> <laughs> it's there's humans that aren't exact. <laughs> So she gets back and she looks again and she, she can't find it. So she actually calls Tim at home and says, I can't find this. I don't think it's a match. Well, you know, here that history comes into play and Tim essentially kind of, I guess, I think he might have even laughed at her and said, you just don't have any confidence in yourself. It's a hit. It's going to be fine. You know, it's good. So he just kind of brushes her off. And so she, then she calls, Gene Scott, and he just again brushes her off. We fine. We'll look at it tomorrow. You know, it's going to be good. Gene, as a supervisor, really kind of shirks his responsibility at this point and doesn't come in. He just kind of ignores her, uh, her ignores her pleas and her concerns. So it's not until uh, the midnight person comes in, which was the guy who, who trained most of us at that time. He comes
1: in. Oh, no, you know, hold on. This is the guy I'm I'm already feeling bad for because this is the guy walking into a middle of a F storm and does not know <laughs> what he's walking into. And and if I was Mary, I'd be like, you've got to look at this, you've got to look at this. This is the guy I think I feel the worst for right now.
2: Yeah, well, this guy was so even killed that it would not bother him at all. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, I am mean, he's the perfect guy to be here because... He wasn't going to be intimidated by anybody. He would just look at it, and he would not be afraid to be starting making phone calls. So luckily, yeah. he's the one. He's the one that comes in, and and it is Mary is like, you need to look at this. You need to look at this, and he looks at it and he's like, nope, that is not. That's not. That's not him. That does not belong to him at all. And so wow. then he he calls the supervisor, and then now it's coming from this guy. So now... Like
0: the trainer guy. So, yeah.
2: <laughs> right. right. So now they know, oh, okay, something's wrong. You know, it's not till the next morning they come in. Tim now looks at it. He can't find it. I don't know if Gene looks at it again, but he can't find it, obviously, because it's not him. You know, I and mean, right. then the, the sad part is, I guess, me being part of that unit, the saddest part that I have is as a unit, we just didn't say we made a mistake. And it's our fault. It was... You know, there's some points of agreement, and but we're going to send this off to the FBI. We're going to delay this. Uh, So, you know, I really kind of regret that as a unit. We just didn't own up to it right away. Uh, Mm -hmm. But but as you said earlier, Glenn is kind of a typical human thing of don't want to really take blame. Let me, (laughs) let's just try to diffuse this and, and deflect it.
1: Hey, can 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 I ask this? Because I assume we don't actually have the images of the latent and the known. Uh, you, uh, you said it was a palm print. Can you describe the area of the palm, quantity, quality? Is this pretty marginal? Is this is there a lot of information? Just walk us through that a little bit.
2: Yeah, unfortunately, I I don't have those images, and I don't ever remember looking at that image. So what happens later on as a uh, All that, all that casework, anything that's related to the primetime rapist, that is taken away from us. (laughs) Um,
0: (laughs) There's a, yeah, there's a big lawsuit, right?
2: (laughs) Yeah, the lawsuit uh, ensues, but maybe we can get into a little bit later just how other agencies treated us. um, Sure. Which I think is kind of interesting.
1: Okay, all right, so we don't have the images, so we we don't know. I was just wondering if you even recall what area of the palm we're talking about, like a delta or a hypothena or something? Or
2: Yeah, I'm not sure, sorry.
1: Yeah, okay.
2: Yeah, you know, and unfortunately, uh, things that have also occurred, well, Mary knows that this is not a good ID. Well, the city, the police department and the sheriffs and the task force, they've had a press conference. Right. We've got the oh. guy. We've, you know, so it's, it's really a it's blend. Yeah, (laughs) so it's no hiding, and then, you know, one day you're you're the hero, and the next day you're the goat. The next day there's another press conference, and they're saying, well, fingerprints isn't an exact science, and we're going to send this off to the FBI. There's some points of comparison, but some points that don't match, and, you know, the typical cover. It's interesting to note that the detectives that were doing the interviewing, interrogation of Michael Cooper... They got a sense pretty early on that something wasn't right. Mm. They didn't think that they had the right guy. But it comes out, uh, Eric, you had talked earlier, maybe off mic, about the appeal process and for the, the lawsuit that ensued. The detectives had decided ahead of time, if they got that person, that they would really kind of force the issue and not let them speak to an attorney uh, kind of a violation of his Miranda rights. Absolutely, yeah. And so, the, yeah, so they kind of followed that practice a little bit, which was part of the reason for the lawsuit. I mean, Michael Cooper was only only Michael Cooper was in in jail for one night. Problem was, they didn't really make phone calls. His family had no idea where he was. A lot of things that just really kind of make you cringe when you look at it.
0: Yeah, reading through the some of the transcript here, you can search for it uh, online uh, about the the later lawsuit that uh, that came from this, and they go through in a lot more detail than we're going to cover here. What happened during the interrogation? Yeah, lots of things going wrong. Uh, of you know, even if someone expressed some doubts, being sent back in there to really hammer this guy and uh, force him to confess. Uh, but it's it's May seventh. Uh, is when he's arrested and there's this big press conference, May 8th, when he is released and there's another press conference, uh, saying that he's not the guy. And then, uh, again, on, this is going off of the, the court case documentation, uh, May 9th, the, uh, fingerprints are given to the state crime lab, uh, for review. And they say that they don't belong to, uh, Michael Cooper.
2: Right.
1: Hey, uh, guys, before we get into the uh, fallout here, which I I think is pretty fascinating, we're going to have to do a quick shout-out for one of our sponsors. And I just want to let everyone know that this episode is sponsored by Idemia, the global leader in augmented identity. Their technology has combined digital and cloud expertise to bring efficiency and next-generation user experiences to their customers. IDEMIA has launched a new product called Case APHIS. It is a portable latent print examination tool supported by the full power of IDEMIA's MBIS matching algorithms. It's a totally standalone system. doesn't need to connect to your main APHIS or internet. No security, firewall, or CGIS permissions. It's APHIS on a laptop. Case APHIS enables latent print examiners to solve complex and difficult cases faster by searching latent prints collected at a crime scene against known prints on a case-by-case basis. John, in this case, Mary could have taken the palm prints from her suspect, could have taken the palm print from the crime scene and could have searched against it and would have found there is no correspondence there. And this tool will improve your casework efficiency and reduce erroneous exclusions and may, in this case we've been talking about, could have prevented an erroneous identification. Anyway, learn more about Idemia and Case APHIS by contacting us at info.usa at Idemia.com. Solve your cases faster today with Case APHIS. I, and I, I, I know that's our, our sponsorship there, but I actually do believe that would have been a very effective tool if no correspondence comes back in a case like this. It would really make you go,
0: all right, something, something's hinky here. Right. So, John, uh, Michael Cooper is you know, released after that, that night in jail what happens next to all these people involved uh the supervisor tim the you know the guy who initially said it was an id mary uh what uh, what's kind of the fallout within the tucson police department after all this
2: so the immediate fallout is um immediate in the whole scheme of things but
1: uh well let me take a guess they decide to get accredited start documenting write sops and follow all those procedures
2: no, that doesn't happen for another <laughs>
1: 15 years. No, I, thought I, I thought I had that one. Okay. So, now what, so let's, just, what, let's just blame the people then.
2: Right. So, I mean, the repercussions are that Mary has a couple of days off without pay. The, the part that saddens me with, with Mary is that the description as to why she's getting the time off is that she was incompetent. And she really latched on to that. Had a hard time letting that go. And I would talk to her and said, you know, really, you need to change your attitude because you were the hero in a sense of you, you knew and you tried to do the best you could to tell them what was going on.
0: Well, and and she was the one that showed the you know the guy that came in on for the midnight shift and you know continued to question the identification.
2: Right, right. But she could never. She never really got over it. I mean. She eventually does test and she does become uh, a certified latent print examiner in in, in the sense that she passed the test, but she never really is a practitioner of it. She doesn't really get into the field. I think she just wanted to take that test to prove that she could do it. Right, yeah. So so she passes that, but that's years later, and then eventually she leaves the department. So it's kind of sad that she really struggled with recovering from that. And Tim gets a week off without pay, but he's able to recover from it. He uh, eventually becomes a certified latent print examiner. And and part of the things that happens uh from this incident is that we become uh they specialize a unit. So they mm-hmm. do it just a specialized latent print examiner unit. They're just going to be doing the comparisons, it's not gonna be spread out amongst all of us. We're not gonna be doing comparisons on midnight with midnights when you're half asleep. Uh <laughs> so that was kind of a good thing that it gets uh, specialized unit. So we have two examiners, yeah. and Tim becomes one of those examiners. He passes the certification test. So he becomes uh, a certified latent print examiner, works in the unit for a few years. He's actually was asked by the FBI to go and do a presentation on uh, recovering uh, from uh, uh, an erroneous or a bad eye
1: That's fascinating. Now, that, that last part there considering that we never got that from the FBI after Mayfield, that is fascinating to me.
0: <laughs> so like how to continue on, what, what, what was uh, that presentation that they were hoping for?
2: Well, it's just, he was going to give a speech, but unfortunately right. uh, he came down with colon cancer and, and oh. passed away. So hmm. the supervisor at that point, Mr. John Neely actually went and did a presentation about how to recover. Cause back at that time, and, yeah. It was if you made a bad eye dance, your career was over
0: right, right well, so when was uh when did they make that request? Um, is this before mayfield or is this did that come after?
2: It's before mayfield cause okay. Tim passed away, I believe in nineteen ninety four, ninety three. okay, so it would have been before that so ninety two ninety three around there I think is when uh John Neely went to the FBI and and made the presentation.
1: Got it. And the presentation was at the FBI, not the II or anything like that. It was it was just to the FBI. Yes, interesting. Mm, interesting. Yeah,
0: indeed. And then the other Gene Scott.
2: So Gene Scott gets demoted, not so much because of you know a bad ident, but because as a supervisor he didn't follow up on his employee's concerns. Got it. Yeah, he gets demoted from that.
1: Okay. I, so. I'm just going to jump in here as we get to this aftermath, and for listeners, especially those who aren 't late in print examiners, i mean everything we 've been talking about you know there there really was this cultural stigma that if you made an erroneous i d in many units, the threat was that you would lose your job, certainly lose certification for a year if you were certified there's no doubt about that, but the threat was always that you would lose your job, you'd never be able to recover and the idea being is that in some states you would be giglioed or blacklisted in some way that if you ever went to give testimony that it would always come up and haunt you. Now, I know that there are agencies, for example, like the RCMP that even until recently, and I say until recently, they had a view that, no, no, you make an erroneous ID and you're out, you're back on the road. And, and in some police organizations, this was an option. If if your latent print examiner who was also a police officer made an erroneous ID, they could be back on the road or some other job they didn't lose their pension or or get kicked out of the agency altogether unless there was malfeasance or you know lying or some other criminal activity but if it was just you know an honest mistake then they would usually get shifted around this was always a threat and although I think Simon Cole and others have looked at this historically sometimes that was true and like in this case you're describing John where he You know, at least the supervisor was demoted, but it wasn't about the erroneous ID. It was about his his actions. But it doesn't sound like they lost their job, but they might have lost their confidence and had other impacts. So it's interesting. This was the threat, but in practice, it wasn't always the case that people lost their jobs. There was just all this other fallout. And I'm guessing that, as we're going to get to here, other examiners around you guys and how you were treated uh, throughout all of this.
2: Right.
0: So that, that's that's a, a good kind of way to move into this. How did uh, in the unit, just within your group? How did how did you guys view I mean you kind of already talked about how you viewed Mary and it seemed like she was taking it the hardest on herself when you or maybe other people around her was trying to say no actually you were one of the big reasons why this mistake was discovered. Um, what about the rest of the unit and how they reacted to Gene Scott or Tim O'Sullivan? Did that change at all? That dynamic? Was he still the guy you went to for the tough ones?
2: Mm. Uh, no. <laughs> 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 I, I I don't think at that point, you know, that he would have wanted to have looked at them.
0: Right. Yeah.
2: You know, I I think we just kind of, you know, part of it was okay. Well, we've made a mistake. Now, you know, all this dirty laundry is thrown out and you're or your scapegoat. So there was that, that kind of defensive uh, posture. I considered Tim a good friend. I considered Mary a good friend. So, I mean, my feeling towards them was more empathy than I wasn't mad at Tim for making the bad mistake. I think most of us weren't really mad at him. We just thought, well, that happened. And thank God it wasn't me.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I can definitely see that reaction. What about the rest of, you know, the community? Uh, because, I mean, it gets out, obviously, uh, the state crime lab uh, or state latent print unit at the time uh, takes a look at it and says that uh, it was not an identification, it was a mistake. How did how did you guys become viewed in the rest of the state uh, community?
2: Yeah, so not favorably. <laughs> they obviously, in, in good practice, they took all of the, Casework and redid the comparisons that we'd already done, that we'd identified to to the victims and, and various people. So okay. they redid that uh, just to make sure that we didn't make any other bad mistakes. And I remember there was a case that involved me that I had done a super glue print. It was off a cotton ball dispenser and it was clear acrylic plastic. And so, you know, you've got this white image from the super glue. I attempted to photograph it. Not, very, not really successfully, but enough that I could capture it, and I was able to do a comparison and identify it to the victim. Well, the state said, no, that's a bad ID. So right. luckily, that piece of evidence was still in our evidence section. So Tim O'Sullivan went and got it, brought it back, and remember he's a graduate from uh, Brooks College, a photography college. So he knows how to photograph this thing. He brings it up, and he backlights it, makes it look beautiful, there's like 23 points of uh, of agreement on this. Sends hmm. that back to them, and they're like, well, that's not the same image. Well, it is the same print. It's just a different photograph. Right. And then they, they backed off from that. So, Interesting. <laughs> so, and, you know, and, and of course now the state is processing in the scenes, and we're, I mean, it's pretty uh, evident that they have no use for us. They don't trust us. Uh, you guys are are not competent, you're incompetent, and just get out of our way.
1: But is this coming from Tucson Police Department where they don't trust you guys and they've asked the state to step in, or the state has stepped in just jurisdictionally and said, we're taking this over?
2: It's because the task force no longer had any faith in us. So uh-huh. the task okay. force was combined of the police department and the sheriff's office. Yeah, so, okay. Yeah and I can I don't blame them for seeking somebody else to do the work. Cause you know, sure. why would you want to take that risk again? So, yeah. but you know, just the definitely was a, an attitude of, Oh, there's, there's blood in the water and let's kick these guys while they're down. So that was kind of a little bit disturbing.
0: How, and, uh, how long, I mean, this is obviously going on for the rest of, uh, the investigation of that case, uh, How long did you guys feel that from other examiners, from other agencies in Arizona going forward? Did that last a year, five years, 10 years?
2: You know, it probably lasted until Pat Wardheim. (laughs) Pat Wardheim uh, leaves his job in Texas and starts to work for the Arizona Department of Public Safety in the Southern Branch in Tucson. Right. And Pat, you know, thank goodness, Reaches out to, to Tim and the other examiner and says, "Hey, let's get together at lunch and let's start talking about things and what's going on in our science." And so it really took Pat to kind of break down that barrier of, "You guys aren't going to be isolated. We're gonna. I'm going to talk to you. We're going to be a nice cohesive unit down here that we can all rely on each other." Uh, so
1: Pat, that sounds just like Pat. <laughs> I was about to say the
0: same thing. It sounds like Pat.
2: So it really was because of Pat reaching out to them, because I don't think they ever would have reached out to Pat. um, It really broke that barrier down. And so it it took about five years or so.
0: Well, that's great. For anyone out there, because, you know, it it is fairly rare. And, uh, you know, the vast majority of the time, if an erroneous ID does occur, even now it it is caught during that verification step but some of these same emotions can come up even if it's caught before being reported and it doesn't end up this bad people can still have that loss of confidence uh and go through you know similar uh issues uh, when when doing comparisons now so what would you say to uh to someone uh who either uh, makes an erroneous identification uh, that's caught, you know, maybe by their verifier, or uh, to a group of people in an agency that uh, maybe even, you know, has this occur to one of their coworkers.
2: Yeah, well, I would say that it doesn't have to be career-ending. I mean, I, I don't think we have that mentality anymore, but it might still be out there. Just to understand why why it happened, you know, was it confirmation bias or there, there's so much that goes on with our, the human psyche, our brain. You know, what, what mentality do we have each day? That you know, have we just had a fight or something before we come to work? Does any of that play into it? So I, I would just encourage that person to just learn from what caused the mistake and, and why you why you did that. And then just for people to have somewhat empathy or sympathy even for uh, an agency that has that unfortunate event. I mean, I'm sure there's some of us that were probably a little bit gleeful about when the FBI made a mistake, but really it just, what were the dynamics there that, that that even occurred? I mean, they had had great procedures and it still happened. How do we do deal with that? I mean, right. I, if I could just stress with an agency and when I got to, I had the, the great uh, benefit of being able to train people just to be able to have an atmosphere that, even my my trainee, they have a right to say no." I mean examiners have to have that right to say "I don't think so i don't feel good about this. you're going to have to explain it to me better That's what I would really like to convey to to units is have an atmosphere where people are empowered to say, mm, I'm not going to that one."
0: I have to totally agree. I think that's such an important thing in the makeup of a good latent print examiner is uh, to be able to you know, disagree with a coworker on a conclusion and then have a productive conversation as to why there is that disagreement. Both sides of that. My biggest doubt for a latent print examiner is if they're the type of person who's too timid to say, to, to stand up for what they think about a comparison. And then on the other side, though, there is the person who's too forceful in refusing to ever budge from a position, uh, you've got to be able to stand up and say what you think and why you think it, but also be open enough to have that conversation. So if someone is, you know, showing you something that's different than than what you had initially seen, that you can uh, move forward with that new information or that new viewpoint.
1: Yeah, that's a that's fair. You know, and and John, you said something that I'll I'll share with you. You know, our agency, the agency I worked for in our unit, we had an erroneous ID that was caught during verification process. And it was an examiner with 35 years of experience at the time. And this is something you mentioned, you know, the FBI, how did they make that with all their procedures and their skill and their reputation? And, you know, when we when we examined how it happened in our unit, it really was a great examiner having a bad day and there's no way to retrain. For a bad day, there's no, you know, there's no. He he was rushing. He uh, he was going out of town for two weeks. He had to get this report out before he left because the attorney wanted it so that when he came back they could be doing grand jury. And he was rushing through this. And even though he was documenting and following some procedures, he saw some correspondence, just started marking up some dots very quickly, and then reported, you know, an ID. And it was just a bad day. He, He was. Rushing, doing what he knew he shouldn't have been doing, but is really human. You know, it, and, and I'm not even joking. His wife had just called 30 minutes before, saying, "You know, where are you? You're supposed to be home. We're packing. <laughs> we have to go." Right. And he's trying to get this report out, and, and you know, and of course, quality assurance doesn't want to hear bad day. They they want to know you know exact causes and how to prevent this from happening again. And like you said, it's, there's just this human element that's going to happen. And sometimes we have to accept that bad things will happen. But as a what we did as a unit is we all rallied around him when we caught when it was caught, we all took the day off and took him out and we spent time with him. We didn't want him to be alone and get up in his head. I and mean, for, you know, a guy who trained at the FBI, I mean he really thought this was everything. You know, his career was done. This was it. This was all over. And we wanted to Basically, we all shared in with him that this is a family and that we would all work through this together. And that, and it turned out it wasn't a, a cur-ender. He had another few years after this that he worked and it never came up on the stand. He, he slowly regained his confidence back and it was one of those things that, like you said, it was, it, would, it was helpful to all pull together and not ostracize or point fingers, but just own it, accept it, and then move forward. Right, that's great.
2: Just a a side note: we're talking about to own it. Tim O'Sullivan when he would go to to court, I mean, obviously the first few times they would hammer him on it, and he just faced it head on. Yes, I made a a, a bad mistake, and that went on for you know maybe a year or so, and then then it was dropped because they knew he he would own it, and there wasn't anything they could do about it. Because I think most people, most jurors are going to say, well. Aren't you allowed
0: to make a mistake? <laughs> <laughs> right. 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 It's right. it's uh it's funny how the, the the discipline, you know, kind of put that on themselves of, you know, if you make this mistake once, that's it. You you this is the mistake you're not even allowed to make once. And and, and again the idea being is that it would
1: haunt you on the stand and both in the agency for my or my the examiner from my agency and, and Tim in this situation, sounds like they were asked about it and continue to testify and do just fine right that i think that was something that we thought would happen that in reality
0: really didn't happen right right well uh to to finish off the primetime rapist case so just a, a few months later uh in september uh of that same year 1986 tucson police department gets a a new sketch uh, of uh the suspect uh the perpetrator and they don't uh, make it public uh, at right away, uh, but they just show it to uh, certain informants, and uh, one of those informants recognizes it, gives the name uh, Brian Lariva to police. Uh, they go to uh, his house uh, to you know make an arrest, and uh, he uh, shoots himself in the head instead of getting arrested. Uh, the fingerprints and palm prints from different scenes were compared and uh, matched up to uh, to Brian Lariva. So, with that, uh, the primetime rapist case uh, in Tucson kind of comes to a close. And like I said before, later on, there's a there's a lawsuit that um, you know the original uh, suspect uh, you know files for. Not just uh, the arrest, but really the big part was all the the violations of his uh, civil rights during the uh, the arrest and interview that uh, that he was kept at. That kind of closes out uh, everything that happened in the primetime rapist case. And, and and I think it was revealed that you said that he was
1: like an HVAC guy or had some had done work on homes or or something
0: like that.
2: Yes, yes.
0: The uh, the article you know, that kind of revisits this case a few years later, uh, says that, uh, Brian Lariva was a, a loner who had never been married, uh, was a, a cocaine and crack addict from Tucson, but he was kind of the black sheep of a good family, uh, had been in state prison for, uh, sentences involving armed robbery, burglary, and drug possession, but had no previous sex crime convictions, but uh, he was released in April of 1983, and the uh, primetime attack started just eight days later. Wow. And basically all of them were just within a two-mile radius of uh, his house in, uh, in Tucson.
1: Wow. Wow. Yeah, too bad you didn't have APHIS back then. It could have caught that guy so fast. Yeah,
0: absolutely.
2: Right. Yeah, it's a, it's a wonderful tool.
0: I mean, heck! It was just right around that same time in '84, I believe, that uh, you, know, you get the kind of the first big use of APHIS to help solve a crime with uh, Richard Ramirez, the, the Night Stalker. Uh, right. But that's that's one I think, Glenn, we, we can we can talk about uh, uh, you know at some point here in a future episode is just that Night Stalker case, and then you know how fingerprints um, and APHIS kind of uh, was uh, involved in in his capture. So, yeah, in fact, I think I know someone that worked that case so well we will have to reach out to them and see oh, if they uh, they'd
1: like to 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 share
0: yeah so uh Glenn um we're gonna be closing out the interview here so first John, thank you very much for for you know sharing your uh, your Sunday with us and and talking about uh your time down in Tucson and uh you know your memories of of this case we really do appreciate uh, you sharing all this with the audience
2: all uh, right it's been my pleasure thanks for uh Allowing me to to come onto your show and and I appreciate the what you guys are doing with this podcast. It's uh, it's beneficial to me as a latent print examiner, and I'm sure I'm hoping your audience enjoys uh, the talks and discussions that you have out there.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, thanks. Uh, you know, I just I just don't know how many listeners realize. How common erroneous IDs actually are? I think they're a lot more common than people realize. And I know so many very, very good examiners who have made erroneous IDs, and they were they were very fearful to disclose it or even you know tell me. And they you know they, and then once I you know they they did tell me. I said, "Look, you're you you actually join the ranks of a lot of good, well known examiners. It, right. It's not it and." It's this thing that people don't want to talk about, but I think if everyone came forward and actually, you know, raised their hand about how many, you know, have have had an erroneous ID, I think people would be surprised. And like you said, Eric, it's a fairly rare event, but not so rare that, it, that I suspect every examiner knows an examiner who has actually made an erroneous ID.
0: So, Glenn, um, you have some classes coming up you wanted to mention, right?
1: Yeah, just uh, very quickly, we added a new class, and this is this uh, class that uses this Case APHIS. If they don't have a Case APHIS, they can come and test it out, and it, it looks at ca- uh, documentation using Case APHIS approach, some statistical modeling, etc. cetera. It's a new class in Southern California. They can go to ronsmithandassociates.com to register. It's January 8th through the 10th in Anaheim, California and in fact uh, we just got uh, what's the word Except, uh, accepted for certification credit. so the, great, the credits in the, in the class will go towards IAI latent print certification uh, two new classes also added at ronsmithandassociates.com one is an exclusion and sufficiency class in Baton Rouge that is April 29th through May 3rd and then an advanced V applications course that is in New Jersey April 8th through the twelfth, very excited to add three classes. Please go to
0: ronsmithandassociates.com dot com to register for those. Fantastic. All right. Uh, well, remember if you have uh, any stories you want to share, whether they be you know anonymous or uh, shared with your name, you can email us Eric at RayForensics or Glenn at elite dot uh, You can join in the conversation with all of that. Uh, or you can just follow us on Twitter at double loop pod and a new making a murderer has dropped on Netflix. So
1: I'm sure we'll be doing that very, very soon here. I will, yeah. I will be binge watching in the next
0: week. Yeah, me too. And uh, that's definitely something we're, we're going to do at least one episode on depends on how much um, you know, ma- new material is there for us to review and digest and and analyze and just give our forensic scientists perspective on uh, that whole documentary and uh, that whole situation that's been ongoing through lots of appeals and 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 everything so uh, that's going to be exciting and look for that here in the next few weeks you can also uh, find us uh, on stitcher soundcloud or on itunes Uh, wherever you listen to podcasts you can find us but where you do listen to us uh, please give us some ratings and reviews uh, that'll help us out as well. Uh, you know share share the podcast with a friend who might be interested in forensic science, fingerprints or or just uh, you know true crime kinds of stories. You can go to patreoncom duke podcast if you want to uh, you know help support the show. like I mentioned at the beginning, I got a new microphone set up so hopefully this sounds you know really nice uh, for everybody. And uh, Glenn's is going to be arriving here in the next couple weeks. Uh, so you can uh, help us uh, you move forward with, uh, with that through contributions on Patreon.com. The topics discussed here and the opinions expressed belong to the speakers and not to any agency that they work for. And that goes for our guests as well. Uh, so with that, I'll sign off and talk to you guys next time. Bye, everybody. Have a good week.